Hello, and welcome to the Pandemic Puppy Podcast, brought to you by Journey Dog Training and the Pandemic Puppy Raising Facebook group. I'm your host, Kayla Fratt, and I'm so excited to be here with you. We're going to cover puppy raising right from the start on this podcast, and although I'm a professional dog trainer, this is actually going to be my first time raising a puppy, too. So I'm right in the trenches with you on the good, the bad, the cute, and the stinky. We're starting right from the beginning today with Megan Wallace and Amber Kwan talking about picking a breeder and then picking a puppy once you've found a breeder. So Megan and Amber are both part of the amazing admin team over at the Pandemic Puppy Raising Facebook group. So Megan has been around dogs her entire life, getting her first competition dogs at age 12. Since that time, she's tried out many dog sports and activities and prefers to let the dog tell her what stuff they like to do. After working on a variety of aspects within the pet industry, her passion for training led her to pursue it professionally. Megan opened up Dogs Deciphered in 2013, which became a full-time job in 2016. She enjoys helping her clients solve behavior problems and teaching canine nose work classes. She lives in Loveland, Colorado with her husband, an almost nine-year-old Rhodesian Ridgeback, three border collies aged seven, three, and eight months. Uh, Megan, why don't you just say hi so people can get a, a feel for your voice. Hi, everyone. And then Amber started off with her first dog from the local SPCA at age 10. She quickly became hooked on dog sports after borrowing and co-owning several purebred dogs to be able to compete in AKC dog sport options. At 16, she brought home her first puppy, an Australian Shepherd named Rue, from an amazing breeder. She's been training dogs and dog owners professionally for 15 years now and currently owns and operates Summit Dog Training in Fort Collins, Colorado. Her most recent breeder experience has been searching for and finding the perfect Papillon puppy, Jameson, who came home in March of 2020. So go ahead and say hi, Amber. Hi, everyone. Glad to be here. Yeah, we're psyched to have you. And just as a reminder to our listeners, if um, you haven't yet signed up on Patreon, you can sign up for as little as $3 a month, and that will allow you to submit questions that we'll answer at the end of this podcast. Because we're recording this podcast before we've even launched, we don't have any yet. But just know that by the time you guys hear this, you can submit those questions and those questions will be answered as soon as we receive them in the next episode that's recorded. So as I said, today we're talking about how to select a breeder and then how to select a puppy from a given breeder. There's not necessarily a right and wrong way to do this, but we're going to cover a lot of our top tips for you and some broad generalities. Um, so let's start off from the top with why good breeders matter. Um, Megan, do you have any first thoughts on why good breeders matter? Yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know, one of the reasons that a lot of people want to get a puppy from a breeder is that they um, want to kind of stack the deck in their favor. Um, we want to know as much as we can about the parents, the genetics, all of that sort of thing. And a good breeder has all that information for you. Um, they can you know, teach you about your dog's breed, be a great mentor for you, and um, just get you started off on the right foot. Yeah. And Amber, do you have anything else that kind of comes to mind right away for you, especially as someone who just got a puppy from a new breed? Yes. Um, I think that breeders are such a valuable resource to any dog owner, um, especially a dog owner that might be new to a particular breed because they're going to have insights on what to expect and um, some, you know, pit pitfalls to look out for or uh, some, you know, funny quirks in the breed that can basically be mm -hmm. a really uh, a big you know, hand holder throughout the whole process. Mm -hmm. uh, and I also, one of the reasons I have loved working with a great breeder as well is they are not only like a support system, but also like a cheerleader and um, an enthusiast, like a, a mm -hmm. big part of what uh, 
uh, of the group of people who care about your dog. Not maybe not as much as you do, but uh, probably close to as much. And I think the more people you have on your dog's team, the better. Yeah, absolutely. And I know, you know, I got my first dog, Barley, from a shelter and this upcoming puppy is coming from a breeder. And I've been really excited with, you know, being able to watch how the puppies are developing and get to, getting to know the parents um, and what their tendencies are like, which has been really helpful because looking at, you know, a six or an eight week old puppy and figuring out how that puppy is going to mature is really challenging. Um, but being able to ask the breeder about the grandparents or the great aunts, um, and especially the parents as well can really help. Um, a couple of the other things that I kind of had jotted down are um, related to grooming, which may, may matter more from one breed to the other. But if you're, you're a first time poodle owner, um, I've got to imagine that working closely with your breeder to learn how to groom that puppy um, or really any other, you know, anything more complicated than a lab coat wise is probably going to be really helpful. Um, and then, you know, we also talked in our episode about breeder versus shelter about why a breeder might be best for you and a good breeder is going to really stack the deck in your favor. So just as a reminder, you know, if you're looking for a puppy for specific needs or goals um, or your local shelter just doesn't have a lot of variety or a lot of dogs, period, um, or you've got any other preferences that are hard to fit into a shelter or find at a shelter, that is, again, where a breeder can come in handy. So. You know, I know when I was looking, I was originally very much so looking at shelter dogs. Um, and I probably could have found another Barley at a shelter, but I very much so wanted a dog that I could potentially keep intact and let mature um, and potentially breed later on. And that is impossible basically to find at a shelter um, uh, because almost all of them either adopt out spayed and neutered or have spay and neuter contracts. And I also, to be perfectly honest, have, aside from these temperament goals, I really wanted a prick-eared border collie and I really had a strong preference for not black and white. Um, and, you know, while that is less important than the actual temperament, uh, that was something that I really wanted and I was having a very, very hard time finding that in the shelter. Um, so anything else to throw in on why good breeders matter? You know, because you can, go to a crappy breeder and find a puppy who's what you're looking for, um, or at least looks like what you're looking for. So what else might you be avoiding yeah, by going with a really good breeder? Grooming, I thought my, about my first job was working for a Briard breeder. And if that's not a breed you're familiar with, Google it and you'll see how much hair they have. Um, and they actually would do yearly or sometimes every two years seminars for all of their puppy owners on raising care, grooming, any sort of thing that they may need help with, training, all of that kind of stuff. And that's just something you would never get, that sort of support you would never get from a breeder who just kind of doesn't really care about what they're doing and is just, you know, uh, flippant about it, I guess. And I think that that sort of support, as we were talking about, can just be invaluable. Yeah. And building off of that, um, when I got my first puppy from a breeder, I was um, a young dog owner as well and was interested in getting more active in dog sports. I had already been participating in dog sports with other dogs that 
weren't brand new to me, but, um, you know, confirmation was a, a whole new ball game for me when I first got my, um, my first purebred puppy and my breeder at that time kind of just took me under her wing and was such a big, uh, support and, the education source for me in um, learning about like, you know, the nuances of showing a dog in the breed ring um, that I hadn't done specifically before. And that's uh, something that's hard to find. Uh, And that might not be everyone's goal to do that. But, you know, whether it's, you know, wanting to do agility and you get a dog from a breeder who does agility with their dogs and um, can connect you with the things that you might want to, that might help you along that journey. Um, All of those things can be uh, really, really helpful. Yeah, absolutely. And I know, you know, when I when I was looking for my my next puppy, you know, I'm looking for a scent dog. I'm looking for a detection dog, and not just competitive nose work. I'm looking for a dog who's going to have the drive and um, endurance or stamina to really do like long, large area searches. You know, uh, we frequently do like 300 acre searches um, with our dogs. So, you know, I know it was really, really helpful for me to be in pretty much constant communication with my breeder as the puppies were developing and doing tests and all of that in a way that I probably could have if I had developed a close relationship with a foster family within a rescue that I knew well. Um, And we could have done testing and similar things, but it is a lot easier to find that with a breeder than it is to find with even a really dedicated foster family in a really great rescue. So um, now we're going to go through kind of 14 points that we, we've put together on general things to look for in a good breeder. So I can't emphasize enough here that everything here is a generality and some breeders are fabulous, but bend these guidelines in some places and that is absolutely okay. Um, we're just helping you kind of think about what to look for in general. And, you know, we might, we'll probably bring up in each scenario, like, a time or two where that rule could be bent or broken and that's you know something we're comfortable with versus maybe when it's not so i think what's going to make sense here is we all have this list in front of us and we can kind of just go through one point at a time um so amber why don't you go ahead and start with number one so number one on the list of uh things that make a great breeder uh is that they typically have one litter at a time. And there are certainly caveats here. Uh, You know, things happen, sometimes multiple breedings that were planned well in advance with all good intentions, you know, just happen to coincide and overlap. And they're well-researched. But I think the, the intention behind adding this to the list is that if a breeder is habitually having multiple litters at a time, that that could be an indication that there is um, a lot going on and perhaps some things are not being done as uh, thoroughly as possible. So um, that's something that we, you know, look out for when we're evaluating. But again, it's not, you know, a complete throw throw out that uh, breeder as a candidate if that should happen, but just, you know, some discussion about whether that's the norm or whether that was intentional and, and all of that is important. Yeah. And I think it kind of, for me at least, ties into how I want the puppy to be able to live with me. So if I were looking for a police dog that would more or less live in a kennel environment and just be a working dog, I would feel pretty comfortable getting my puppy from a working canine kennel that may have multiple litters at a time because that is their job. They are producing puppies um, and that puppy is not really meant to be a pet. So I'm okay with it being raised in a more kennel type environment. 
Um, same with, you know, if I was looking for my 13th bear hound, <laughs> uh, bear dog or something, um, that would be really different um, versus just generally I'm looking at you smaller breeders that are raising the puppies in their home and doing a lot of really intensive socialization to help that dog be a good pet. And that is just really hard to do if you're <laughs> habitually doing multiple litters at a time. But yeah, I mean, absolutely, you could just have multiple females go into heat at the same time. And for whatever reason, you don't want to skip one of their heats um, and miss out on a breeding. Um, so Megan, why don't you go ahead with number two? Yeah, so number two is that the parents are on site and available for meet and greets. Um, this is not always the case with the stud dog uh, because they often may be from you know a different kennel or a different owner. Um, and so you may not get a chance to meet the stud dog, but um, actually one of the things you might ask the breeder is if they've had a chance to meet the stud dog. Because one thing that we always did with our Border Collie litters um, until the one litter that we had to use imported semen, we always made a point to go and visit the stud dog ahead of time because we didn't just want to rely on what people said about them. Um, and so I think it's really important that, you know, in this day and age where we can um, do, you know, breedings from across the country, that the breeder has actually spent some time with the stud dog if they aren't on site. Um, but you should absolutely be able to meet the dam. Um, and, you know, I think also using technology to get references from people who have met the parents and maybe spent some time around them, talk to other people who have spent time around the breeder and their dogs, because they can often give a really good picture of what sorts of behaviors that you see. So I think that can be very valuable as well. Yeah, I know I spent a lot of time watching video of both of the parents of my dog um, before I, I made it down there. And I was actually lucky enough that the weekend I went to visit the puppies, um, the the sire was there visiting as well. He doesn't normally live there, but so I got to meet both of them. Um, but, you know, you can also get a lot from video. So even if you're not going to be able to be there at the same time as the sire and meet him, you will be able to... Um, get some video and ask for a variety of video, you know, don't just get video of him working or of him sleeping, you know, ask for a variety of things. Another um, substitute or supplement, I should say, for this that I have used uh, is asking the breeder to connect you with other people who have dogs uh, from her their lines. So especially in the age of Facebook and sharing a lot of dog videos and uh, photos on Facebook, I have asked the breeders like, hey, can you like send me a few names of people who have dogs from you so I can send them a friend request on Facebook or join uh, a lot of breeders will have like Facebook support groups for their mm -hmm. um, puppies. And so joining that and then looking not only at the videos uh, of the you know, direct lineage, but also the products of other breedings from uh, that same breeder can help round out the picture too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'll go ahead with number three, and that is that puppies are raised indoors in the home. Um, and again, you know, there's a caveat here. So if you're really looking for a working dog or a hunting dog um, or something specifically where you're not necessarily expecting your dog to be living indoors, then this might not matter as much to you. But I, I expect that the vast majority of our listeners are looking for a dog who's going to be indoors with them and in their home as a pet. So you really want those puppies from, you know, literally day one to be used to that. Um, so, and I 
honestly, unless you're looking at a dog that you are also not planning on having indoors, generally, this is a pretty big one for me. Um, the one caveat I guess I would add is that there are some breeds where it is relatively common for the parents to be working farm dogs or working hunting dogs and those puppies to still go home to pet homes. So I know, you know, within border collies, it's relatively common. Um, there are some really, really great breeders out there who are a little bit more old school and their puppies are raised out in a barn or in the garage because the parents are working and why would you bring your working dog inside? That's very strange to them. Um, so, you know, again, like all of this, it's a guideline, just, you know, take it into, into account. And if there's a lot of these 14 points that your breeder is missing, then that is probably something to consider here. So, so, all right, let's go ahead with number four for Amber. Uh, so the next thing on our list is that your prospective breeder uses a puppy raising program, uh, such as puppy culture, Avidog. Those are, uh, two different, like, uh, trademarked names for, uh, puppy raising programs and the ENS, which stands for something neural stimulation. What's the first word? What does early, 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 neurological, early, <laughs> early neurological <laughs> stimulation. <laughs> and, uh, these are really important. Uh, even if your breeder doesn't, you know, ascribe to one particular label or another, but that they're doing something with their puppies. Um, and this starts can start as early as, uh, during the gestation period while puppies are still in the womb, things that are, uh, the breeder is doing an exercise that they're doing with the dam to help uh, them prepare puppies or prepare them to birth, you know, well-adjusted and able to be, you know, calm and relaxed and all the wonderful qualities we want in our puppies. And then, you know, week one or day one uh, on the ground, those routines and patterns that we start to work into the puppy's daily routine, helping them build resistance to frustration, helping them build like body awareness by knowing like how to move their feet and how to respond to like sensitive or other senses like touch and um, smell. All of these early development things can really enhance your puppy's ability to live like a well-adjusted, you know, happy, relaxed life with you as soon as you bring it home. And so, as you are considering, you know, selecting a breeder, you can ask, like, do they use puppy culture? Do they use Avidog or some other form of um, ENS protocols? And many breeders will have kind of like a, a hodgepodge of different things that they do from pulling from these programs. And I think the most important thing is that they're doing something um, and not just, you know, whelping puppies and then letting them grow up for eight weeks and then sending them home. Yeah, absolutely. Our family has bred several litters of Border Collies, and um, we were very lucky to find out about uh, ENS as, as a separate protocol um, early on in our breeding uh, careers. So we had one litter that we did not do that with. And of course, they still got lots of, um, you know, attention and petting. And, you know, we were paying a lot of attention to the puppies, but not doing anything specific um, for early development. And I really do feel like we could see a difference between the outcomes with that litter and then the next litter, which was the same dam, um, in terms of resiliency, ability to bounce back from, you know, stressful events. Um, so I think that's definitely, you know, ENS is important. It's a part of most of the good puppy raising protocols in some form. Um, I also think that if you're interested, you know, like Kayla is in doing scent work, um, there are also early scent um, 
protocols where, you know, introducing them to different scents. And then something that we always do with our puppies is just a lot of, um, you know, food searching games as they go along, starting even when they're little bitty and just searching for the, you know, food pan after they're weaned, you know, there may just be a small obstacle in the way, right, that they have to kind of navigate around. So we do all sorts of things that um, really try to develop the skills that we want our puppies to go on to be able to do. Yeah. And if you're looking for more of just kind of a general pet dog and kind of hearing us talking about this and thinking like, oh my God, this sounds like overkill. I don't need a puppy that can already like, you know, pivot on a disc and do, you know, and search out food and, and, and by the time it's eight weeks old, I would say, you know, think of it kind of like when you're talking to expectant parents, you know, they're thinking about baby Mozart and, you know, making sure that mom isn't drinking caffeine and that she's staying nice and relaxed and they're doing all these things with their little baby and that's not because they're trying to raise their child to be you know the president (laughs) or the next Beyonce or whatever they just want a really well-rounded human being and they're trying to set their baby up for success so while you you will see um, potentially really kind of intense versions of this um, in breeders that are really aiming for performance or sport I would say that generally you probably want something along these lines for pretty much any dog because it is so important for teaching them to deal with thunderstorms and fireworks and uh, weird surfaces and bouncing back from something that does frighten them. Um, you know, it it sounds like overkill at first, um, but then when you think about what your average human parent does for their their child, it it's really kind of similar, I would say. And I'll add uh, one additional thought on that is that when I was searching for my most recent puppy, Jameson, I um, encountered a lot of breeders who either didn't say the answer my question in the affirmative when I asked if they did puppy culture or have a dog, but they said, oh, we do other things. And so even though they weren't ascribing to one of those particular labels, they were still incorporating some of the things that I look for. And so I was able to then ask follow-up questions like, can you tell me about the different surfaces that uh, your puppies experience in their first eight weeks? Or can you tell me about the different obstacles that they are um, exposed to in uh, their enclosure or, um, you know, what type of other like you know, stimuli do you incorporate into their day? Like things like that, questions like that can help you get a picture for whether the breeder is thinking along those lines, even if they don't perhaps ascribe to like, oh yeah, I, I do puppy culture with my puppies or I do have a dog program. Um, there's likely that they might still be incorporating some of those things. You just have to know to ask a little bit more um, specific questions. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the last thing I'll say on this before we need to move on to number five is that, you know, kind of like any other training protocol out there, um, I think puppy culture or Avidog or ENS executed poorly by a novice breeder or someone who's rushing through it can be harmful. I do know of some dogs where, you know, they did come from really nice puppy culture lines and it's hard to say whether, you know, what exactly happened as far as the genetics or, you know, going a little bit too intensely with the puppy culture. But because the point of all of these puppy raising programs is to help build resilience, you know, by nature, they're exposing the puppies to things that are mildly stressful. So if you feel like your breeder doesn't have a good grasp on body language, and you can even ask, you know, like if a puppy seems a little bit nervous of X, 
what is your response going to be or how are you watching to make sure that they're not getting too nervous, you know, that's a good thing to keep in mind, especially if you're looking at a breed that is not um, considered the most resilient out there. You know, I would worry about this more with, um, you know, German Shepherds or Border Collies than I would with Labradors, just because they just tend to be less resilient breeds. And if you've got a breeder who is, you know, rushing through it and stressing the puppies out too much, it potentially could hurt. I've heard some anecdotes um, where people are pointing towards poorly done puppy raising programs as part of the problem. So that's probably muddying the water more than anyone wanted, but, <laughs> but it is something just to be said. <laughs> um, all right. So Megan, do you want to talk a little bit about number five? Yeah, absolutely. So number five is working closely with your breeder to select your puppy. Um, not just going solely based on color or whichever one you want in that moment. Um, and this is actually something that's very near and dear to my heart because when I brought my Rhodesian Ridge back home um, just almost nine years ago, I had actually been able to be really close with the litter and see them really regularly because I lived fairly close with the breeder. And I had my favorite that I just always loved having him on my lap. And he was just the cutest little fella. And I really kind of had in my mind because I was, you know, one of the first people that was going to be able to pick my puppy, um, that that was what, you know, that was the one I was going to take home. And she, you know, spent a lot more time with the puppies than I was able to, even though I was over there a lot. And she said, I really think that you should consider this little orange boy. You know, they had different color collars. And she said, I really think that you should consider him. And at first I was like, oh, but I love the black collar boy. He's so cute and he's the one I feel like I bonded with. And she said, yeah, but here's some of the things that I've seen that I want you to consider. And she was very honest with me. And she pointed out that the little orange boy loved playing with toys and that being a trainer, she knew that I'd want a dog that was more willing to engage with me um, and that he really kind of had more of that fun vibe, right? Being hound dogs, they can be kind of lazy and he liked to be up and running around and doing stuff. And, you know, as I watched the puppies grow up once I, we, we brought everyone home, um, I just, she couldn't have been more right. He, you know, Fox is absolutely the perfect dog for me from that litter. Um, the, you know, the black collar boy went on to a pet home where he's just a lazy hound dog and doesn't really want to do be bothered by much. And I would have been a little disappointed in that, right? Like it would have been not as fun for me as a, as a trainer to get to, um, you know, teach different skills and that sort of stuff. If I really had a hard time motivating the dog at all. Um, and so that was just, you know, my own personal experience. And then certainly as a breeder, um, when we've placed puppies, it really has been important to take in all of the information that the puppy owners give us and make decisions based on what we've seen over a long time period, not just in those moments of time when you might get a chance to be with the litter. Yeah, absolutely. I know one of the things that I did with my breeder and the, the litter that I'm looking at um, is, so it was a very colorful litter. Um, we had a a slate merle, a blue merle, a red merle, a black and brown and white tri, a two black and whites, and gosh, does that add up quite right? I think I'm missing one. Oh, and then a red sable. 
So there was only two puppies out of the whole litter that are the same. <laughs> um, and it, just an incredibly colorful, pretty litter. And, you know, literally from the moment they were born, I had one that was my favorite by coat color. You know, I just, I had one where he, um, he had the most symmetrical markings. He had the most markings on his face, which is something I really like. And he was a blue Merle, which is what I'd been hoping for. Um, and what I actually asked the breeder to do was when she posted her thoughts on the puppies, because she would kind of do like a weekly update on like, you know, what her assessments of the personalities were in our little Facebook group. I actually asked her, like, would you be willing to number the puppies instead of naming them so that I could read these assessments and look at them objectively, not knowing which one was the Blue Merle? Um, and I think that's maybe particularly challenging with these really colorful breeds um, or colorful litters. You know, I kept finding myself wishing like, man, I wish I was just looking at a litter of yellow labs where at least I wouldn't have as strong of feelings about looks potentially. Um, <laughs> and uh, luckily what actually ended up happening is that Alistair, which is his name currently, um, the Blue Merle, uh, ended up having a personality that far and away is what I was looking for. Um, but it took... I feel so much better knowing that I'm bringing him home and that we had decided that based on looking at numbers and scores instead of just me looking at video. Um, and, you know, I, I know that I'm not able to be objective about it. I know that I just like, I love how he looks. Um, so I got really lucky and I had to tell myself that I was absolutely willing that if, you know, one of the black and white, the black and white boy, which is the one that I wanted least um, because he would look so much like Barley <laughs> and it would be confusing and I'm, you know, whatever. Um, um, I had to, you know, remind myself that like, yeah, if that's the right dog for you, you should take him home. And if you're really, really not willing to have another black and white boy, then wait for another litter. Um, so Amber, did you have anything, how, cause Papillons probably tend to have pretty small litters like most toy dogs. So what, how did that go for you with Jamie? Really easy. He was the only one that they were placing. There, there was a litter of two um, and his breeder was keeping the female in the litter and placing the boy. So I had, um, a, a, you know, is this the right puppy or not? Um, but the as far as picking out of that litter, there was no choice. <laughs> he was perfect. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah, that's lucky. Um, so just and this is going a little bit off topic but i'm just really interested because i've never you know been in the position where i'm looking at like okay i've got one option yes or no versus kind of i had a, I had a menu of seven um uh did you spend a lot of time looking at lines um or kind of you know knowing that they have such small litters how did you yeah. kind of go about picking the right breeding to watch sure um so i went about it in a, maybe a slightly unconventional way because um i started my research uh, well in advance when I wanted a puppy and I had um, had a breeder that I, I still love her, her lines and I maybe will get a puppy from her one day, but it just didn't work out. Um, so I had been following this breeder for quite some time and looking in to um, her dogs and I just love them. Uh, and then it, it didn't work out. And for a number of reasons, uh, but I ended up moving on um, from that. But at that point, I had been kind of committed to getting a puppy, you know, on this certain timeline, um, you know, for about six months now I had, it was a coming up on a year since I had lost Rue and I just was, you know, had that hunger and burning for a puppy. And 
knew that I didn't, I shouldn't rush it and I shouldn't, uh, you know, force something that wasn't right. And then when it just, uh, the, the litter that I had been waiting on just didn't turn out to be, um, a good fit for, for what I needed for some, um, some reasons I decided, you know what, I just got to go back to the drawing board and I'm going to go back and, um, see what else is out there. And I found, through my six months of research that in the Papillon breed, which is the breed that I had picked uh, quite a while ago uh, as my next dog, that there were not a ton of um, like litter announcements, like this litter is coming, This and not a lot of mm. updated information on um, the sources that I was checking as far as like websites and uh, and places that you typically tell puppy owners to go, like find a responsible breeder, like correspond with them through their website and see what they have for you coming up and like get on their waiting list well in advance. Well, I was hitting a lot of dead, dead ends. Like I contacted so many breeders just kind of looking for information and just was hitting wall after wall of people saying like, oh, well, we don't have puppies or we don't take waiting lists for puppies because our litters are so small. They go to people mm -hmm. that already have dogs from us and we don't place puppies with people outside of those um, spheres because Papillons has such small um, litters is one factor there. And so I was just hitting like a lot of dead ends. And then, um, you know, I found a couple Facebook groups, like after I had backed out of, um, a litter, like puppy was on the ground, but I, it just wasn't a good fit. And I, I said, Nope, this isn't the puppy for me. And I kind of was like, well, I'm not getting a puppy this year. Resigned myself to that, like was brokenhearted, but, um, <sighs> was like, I'm just going to go back to the drawing board and start over. And so as part of that, I found Facebook groups dedicated to Papillons, which I had not explored before. And, generally dog groups, we know like they can be, um, especially when we're talking about like available puppies for homes, like not always the most, um, clear place to find, um, ethical and, uh, responsible breeders. But I did find, um, a group that I was just watching for a while. And then one day this adorable little puppy popped up. I think he was probably like maybe eight weeks old, um, at that point. And so, um, the breeders, you know, this was this first, like this puppy's available in four weeks. Cause, um, she keeps her puppies, um, a little bit older than eight weeks. Um, and we're looking for the perfect home for him. And here are all his, um, you know, information about his parents and his, um, you know, uh, health testing and all of the things that I look for in a responsible breeder. And, um, so I was like, well, he's pretty cute. Let me just, you know, I'm back to the drawing board here. Let me just ask this breeder, you know, this might not be the puppy for me, but maybe, um, maybe it is a relationship that might develop into something down the road since I'm just kind of at this point trying to connect with people. And I reached out and this breeder just really opened up to me, um, like with a lot of really helpful information, which is, um, something that I have been, uh, really feeling frustrated about the lack of with some of my other encounters with different breeders and um, just provided me above and beyond um, information, you know, to a stranger on the internet about her breeding program and um, the process that she goes and, uh, and basically just said like, you know, after we talked back and forth for, you know, several days, she was like, I think he would be a great fit for this puppy. You know, here's all the things that he's doing and showing and he's, 
you know, perfect and wonderful in every way that I ever wanted. And, um, and so that was, that was that. So it just kind of broke some of the rules that I have previously like held mm-hmm. to be true, um, as far as how you go about finding a puppy and how long you should be in contact with the breeder before you decide to get a puppy from them. Because, you know, I, have told people like you want to be on their list well in advance. You want to, you know, connect with them. You want to understand like, oh, puppies are being born. How are they? They get weekly updates. And I kind of jumped on the, um, the, like that connection a little bit late in the game as far Mm -hmm. as that pattern. But because everything else was a go, like it, it really was a, a great fit and I haven't regretted it at all. She's, um, yeah, has been wonderful to work with and, and the other breeders that I've encountered along the way have all been wonderful. Um, they just weren't, you know, the right fit or the right timing or the Mm -hmm. right, you know, results from a reading that I was looking for. And I, you know, and I had this experience with Rue as well. Rue, my, my Aussie, I guess I should (laughs) preface that who, who he is, um, my first puppy from a breeder that breeder and that litter was not the first litter that I was on the waiting list for. There was another Mm -hmm. breeder and another litter that I had, um, on my horizon as I'm getting a puppy, like I'm committed, I'm, you know, getting a puppy from this breeder, it's going to be born. And then it didn't work out. And that was heartbreaking Mm -hmm. at the time. And I look back now and I'm like, that was the best decision ever that that didn't work out because I ended up with a perfect dog and a breeder whose like relationship with, uh, that breeder like lasted throughout Rue's life. And so hindsight is good and also mm-hmm. willing to walk away from something that doesn't feel right. Yeah. I think is an important piece of picking breeder and something definitely I've learned from my two experiences so far. Yeah, I know I've had, I had similar experiences. So I've been on the wait list for a breeder that I had really, really hoped for a puppy from for probably two years now. Um, and she just doesn't breed all that often. She's a pretty small kennel, um, runs a working sheep farm. And um, the last two times she's tried to breed the the one female that is kind of her current breeding female, because she doesn't have six or seven. Um, she's got, I believe, one, maybe two. Um, the pregnancies haven't taken. Um, and then I have been on a couple other lists and, um, most recently, just probably a month or two ago. So November of 2020, I was offered a puppy kind of unexpectedly at eight weeks when the puppies were eight weeks old because someone else had backed out of, um, the litter because of COVID, I believe. And, um, you know, this kind of folds into five where basically the reason I ended up walking away from this puppy was a little bit twofold. It, you know, part of it was, I just felt like, okay, this puppy is already eight weeks old. They go home at 10 weeks from this breeder. I don't quite feel ready to bring home a puppy in two weeks. It was just a little bit too fast for me. And she was absolutely willing to keep the puppy for longer um, because she had one keeper from the litter um, that is still around and she's already got a bunch of dogs. And she was like, I'd absolutely keep the puppy till 14 or 16 weeks or whatever. Um, but, you know, part of it is I want a puppy, so I want to bring it home, you know, as young as is reasonable. Um, and then the other thing was, because I have such specific goals, I ended up turning down this puppy because I wasn't entirely sure that this puppy out of that litter was the best one for me. She sounded lovely. Um, I still follow this puppy on Instagram, and I think she's going to turn into a really cool dog, and she absolutely could have been the dog for me. It just felt like it was too fast for me. Um, and that's a personal choice. You know, I think there um, there have been other dogs that um 
shortly before that, there was another similar-ish situation where there, I just had a couple more details about the dog and I actually was ready to pull the trigger on a similar timeline just because of what I knew about the dog. Um, and that dog ended up going home with someone else for um, transport reasons because they were coming from the Midwest and they just decided they wanted a local home. But, um, you know, long way to say, whenever possible, generally working closely with the breeder to select the puppy is the way to go. Although again, if you're looking at really small litters or um, anything like that, that just might not be an option, but then you're really still, you have to be willing to walk away in general. I think that's probably something we would all agree on. Um, I don't remember where we were in our rotation, um, but I think it's my turn. So I'm going to go with number six um, with parents over two years old. Um, and this is just a pretty big health reason. Um, you know, you just don't want um, to be breeding dogs that are not yet known entities as far as how they've matured socially and behaviorally or physically. Um, if you're breeding 18-month-old dogs, while they might be physically capable of producing viable puppies, you don't know how their hips have matured and they could be developing hip dysplasia or they you could see um, major dog-dog aggression develop at um, two years old in that breed. Um, and you know, generally, I even like to see dogs that are closer to two and a half or three years old when they're when the breeder is deciding to breed, just because you don't know how they're going to mature when you're breeding, you know, essentially teenagers. <laughs> so I feel like this one is actually probably my cleanest, hardest, fastest rule. But am I missing anything? Do you guys have anything that you would say to go against this rule or add as to why it's important? Yeah, I mean, I over the years, I have heard people have justifications for breeding a dog's a little younger than two years old based on heat cycles and that sort of stuff. But honestly, um, I think in a lot of those situations, they still mm -hmm. could have waited. Um, and I think that especially, you know, both Kayla and I are border collie people and um, epilepsy is a huge deal that typically shows up, you know, within uh, three to four years. And so I think there are some people that even really believe that you know, the longer you can wait um, to see if those sorts of things develop, the better. Um, so there is a little bit of a balance between reproductive health and viability um, and age, especially for the females, that you can't wait too long. Um, but I really am definitely, as I've gone along in breeding and, and dogs in general, I do think that uh, the longer yeah. you can wait to really see who that dog becomes, the better. Yeah, I could see, you know, a 22-month-old dog. Um, that is pretty close, but, and, and, you know, there's a case-by-case -case basis, I'm sure. You know, I, not knowing anything beyond that, I would kind of say, like, well, why couldn't you just wait till the ne he next heat cycle when the dog is, you know, what's 22 plus 6? <laughs> you know, 28 months old. Um, you know, they've got a lot of life ahead of them at that age. Um, so, I, you know, I, I'm sure that there are, justifications but it without knowing anything else i think that is and especially if you're seeing a breeder kind of habitually breeding really really young dogs that would be a pretty huge red flag to me all right um so amber why don't you go ahead with puppy age of availability um which is number seven yes yeah, so typically um so typically a um a good benchmark 
to look for is uh, breeders committing to sending puppies home no younger than eight weeks of age. And this has to do with the puppy developmental period. Um, it's a law in a lot of states or there are rules in a lot of states on what age, even if it's not specifically eight weeks, but eight weeks is a really good um <laughs> good developmental point where puppies are expected to be ready to leave their um, mom and litters as comfortably as possible. It's still going to be a bit of a transition and adjustment, but um, younger than eight weeks, we see a lot of adverse effects um, later on in the puppy's life in a lot of cases that um, of that early separation. Uh, in Jamie's case, and uh, this is common as far as I understand in a lot of smaller breeds, they typically it's normal for breeders to keep puppies for longer. Um, and in some other breeds as well, they're starting to um, be a trend. I see more breeders like keeping puppies to like 10 or 12 weeks of age, depending on the breed. Um, in Papillons, it's pretty standard from what I was understanding from talking to different breeders that puppies stay with their, um, their breeder until 12 or 14 weeks of age. Um, and many cases just based on the, uh, the different developmental patterns and also just the size and the potential for, you know, a, a young puppy going and getting overexposed to things, uh, at a three pound weight is going to have potentially a harder time navigating that than a puppy with some more immunity and some more body weight going home uh, as well. So some uh, breeders should be able to kind of explain to you why they keep the puppies to the age that they do. And if it varies um, greater than eight weeks with that breeder's preference and or that type of dog, um, know that that's normal. And that's the breeder doing their due diligence to set the puppy up yeah. for success. Yeah, and I know I have heard of a couple, um, particularly, again, I'm, I'm most familiar with Border Collies, so listeners are going to get sick of hearing about Border Collies, and I do apologize. Um, <laughs> you know, I have heard of some pretty well-regarded but older kind of working herding homes that tend to send puppies home around six weeks because that's when they're fully weaned. Um, and that is not a reason that I wouldn't go to a breeder, but if I had the choice between two breeders who, you know, all else being equal, I would go with the one who kept the puppies a little bit longer. Um, there's just so much that they learn from their siblings as far as appropriate dog-dog play mm -hmm. um, that the longer that they can have that benefit um, within reason, um, I would say generally yeah. is probably the better. Um, and I actually know um, one of the breeders that I was looking at, she has occasionally taken on puppies and kind of fostered them who are sent home at six weeks from other breeders. Um, so there are options, you know, if you've got your heart set on a breeder who does send the puppies home a little bit younger because they're more old school and they think, okay, they're weaned, they're leaving now. Um, there are ways to kind of work around that and still get your puppy as socialized as possible. Um, but certainly if you're seeing puppies going home at four or five weeks, um, that that is a huge, huge red flag. I feel like I see that online all the time. Um, and I would run away from that. Yeah. When touching back on your point of, from a second ago about how much puppies learn in that time period, um, that extra few weeks that they might stay with their breeder, how much they learn from their mom, um, from other adult uh, dog, uh, puppy appropriate dogs in the breeder's household and from their siblings. When I brought Rue home, um, 
at eight weeks, so appropriate age, uh, his breeder at that point still had three puppies that she kept uh, for another couple weeks. So either they were um, staying with her for a bit to grow up or um, they weren't ready to go to their homes yet, um, waiting for their, their new homes to pick them up. But we saw her again I think it was a week and a half later after bringing Rue home at eight weeks, we met up with her um, a week and a half later. Puppies had a little oh. reunion play date. And the difference that I saw in Rue's um, tendency to at still at that age, um, he was doing a lot of hand nipping and puppy biting and biting pretty um, hard at that point in that age. And the difference that I saw in his, um, tendencies to do that with the three puppies that had been playing with each other and with their mom and getting like appropriate corrections and disengagements from each other for that week and a half. It made, it was wow. such a big contrast and now Rue recovered and we worked through it and he was a perfectly fine and well-adjusted dog um, <laughs> for the most part <laughs> as an adult dog. But I just um, always remember seeing like the big difference and we brought Rue home at, at an appropriate yeah. age, but the puppies that stayed with their litter an extra bonus couple weeks while they were in those key social learning times, like they had some really yeah. great skills. And so that's why like, I don't shy away from breeders who say, no, I keep my puppies until 10 or 12 weeks because they're doing yeah. so much great learning there with their litter mates. Yeah, that's that a great time. point. And the, well, I think one other thing you can pull out of that is that the breeder was making that decision kind of based on puppy to puppy. It sounds like not just, it sounds like at least one of them mm -hmm. might've been also a pickup scheduling thing. Um, but I know I've been following a litter yeah. of coolies on Facebook. Um, and I actually saw the breeder decided to send home two of the puppies um, at seven weeks because they were quite a bit smaller than their litter mates and were getting kind of pummeled by them. Um, and she actually decided that it was going to be better for them to get out from um, under their much larger mm -hmm. and much more driven si siblings. Um, and, you know, then I there's another Border Collie breeder that I follow who has kept two from the litter. One is her keeper puppy and the other is a puppy that has been much shyer than she was hoping. And she's really keeping that puppy um, for a little bit longer. I don't know exactly what her plans are, but to really help that puppy be ready to go take on the world. So I and that is not necessarily something that every breeder is going to do, but when I do see that sort of attention and dedication and care, that is uh, a big plus. <laughs> yeah, I will say that um, one thing to pay attention to, because we've been talking about breeders that keep puppies for longer, and when you're weeding out, you know, uh, less responsible breeders, generally you'll weed this out anyway, but um, you do want to make sure that if the breeder is keeping those puppies longer, that they are doing things with them. Um, Ooh, yeah, we all know that we have a very small socialization window and there are definitely situations, especially, you know, we talked about like those caveats where maybe a breeder had multiple litters. Um, this was the situation with uh, my Ridgeback Fox that she had um, just, you know, a four reasons had multiple litters at the same time. Doesn't normally do that, but that's how it worked out this time. And um, I did feel really good about taking him home at eight weeks because I felt like she would have had quite a bit on her hands to try to continue to socialize all of those puppies while she was taking care of younger litter, 
um, at the same time. And so I do think that, you know, communicating with the breeder and making sure that, you know, if they are keeping puppies longer, that they're not just doing it because someone told them that they had to keep puppies longer and they're not actually able to get those puppies out into the world. So that's definitely something to, to talk with them about and make sure that that's happening. I am so glad you said that, Megan. Um, and that was something that I think I'd kind of sort of alluded to, but didn't spell out enough, you know, within reason. Because I will say when I worked at the shelter, um, a lot of the worst, hardest, saddest cases that I've seen are puppies that stayed with their parents and or litter mates until 16 weeks to kind of eight months um, was generally about when they would come in. Um, and the And they had just done nothing but hang out with each other. They'd never been socialized. They'd never been walked. They'd never met other dogs. Um, and obviously these are relatively extreme cases, but they weren't cases of neglect or abuse. These these dogs that were coming into the shelter often were not, you know, hoarding bust cases or animal cruelty cases. They were just, you know, someone had had a litter. They'd never really gotten rid of all the puppies. And then they turned them into the shelter eventually, and they had done nothing with them. And these puppies were so horribly under-socialized and so emotionally interdependent on each other, often really fearful and fear-aggressive towards other dogs. Um, so, <laughs> you know, with the caveat that generally our socialization window closes around 16 weeks. So if your puppy isn't going home until 14 weeks and your breeder hasn't been doing anything with them, you only have two weeks to catch up. And it's, you know, it's not a window that slams shut. It's kind of like, you know, the difference between daylight and nighttime. Uh, you've got this kind of dusky period um, and 14 weeks for a lot of breeds, you're kind of already in there. So you've already got a fair bit of fear that you might be working against. Um, so there's a lot to be said about this, but I think generally I want to see between seven and 14 weeks. Um, I say as a general rule, I want at least eight weeks. Um, and again, with those caveats, that sometimes more like seven is is something that I wouldn't bat an eyelash at too much. All right, Megan, so you've got a huge one. <laughs> Let's go uh, go ahead with number eight. Yeah, so number eight is health testing. This is uh, a, we're not going to be able to cover everything. This is where really no. um, doing research on the breed that you're getting um, or the type of dog that you're getting and finding out what sorts of health testing is necessary for. Um, that breed or breeds, um, because, you know, some people are doing purposeful crossbreeding as well. Um, and so you want to really be in communication with the breeder about what health testing they're doing. Um, do a little of your own research in terms of, you know, what is kind of the norm for that breed. So for purebred dogs, you'll often have like a breed club that outlines what sorts of tests they recommend. Um, another good resource is uh, CHIC, which is Canine Health Information Center, I believe. Um, and they generally will have a list of health tests that each breed um, is supposed to have based on what is common in that breed. Um, so definitely you want to be looking for, you know, actual genetic health testing for a lot of these things, because sometimes you will run into people that just say, oh, my lines are clear of that. That's just kind of a red flag unless they have the proof to back it up with um, actual DNA tests. Um, some things like hips uh, and elbows looking for dysplasia are not able to, you know, there's, there's not a genetic marker that we've identified. So they do radiographs to um, see what the structure of the joint looks like. And then they are evaluated based on 
the structure of that joint in terms of how close to um, either kind of a perfect ideal. If you're looking at like OFA, they rate it based on just kind of what is ideal for a dog. Um, pin hip goes into a little more breed specific um, ratings in terms of how this falls within the norm of the breed. Um, so you can have that information as well. Um, but you're definitely looking for someone who has done as much as they can to assure that uh, their puppies are free from genetic diseases and defects. Um, and it really can depend. So we had, you know, several litters of border collies that most of them are very darkly marked. Um, and of course, you know, hearing is something that is important for all border collies, but it is much more common for puppies with a lot of white markings to have, especially around the ears, um, to have issues with deafness. And so when we had a litter that had, you know, two puppies in it that were really split faced and had a lot of white on their faces, um, that's when we really started Bayer testing, which is the, the hearing test um, at that time, because it was like, okay, this is suddenly something that could become an issue um, in this particular line of dogs that we may have not seen in the past. Um, and so now going forward, any puppies that we have that have what is called white factoring on the head, um, we make sure that they're hearing tested before they go home. So it really can depend on your individual uh, not only the individual breed, but sometimes something that is within uh, individual dogs that you might want to test for. Um, and there's definitely, you know, a wide variety of available genetic tests out there these days. So that's where you really will have to do a little bit of research in terms of what is appropriate for that breed. Yeah, and I think that is probably one of the hardest things for kind of your average pet owner or um seeker puppy buyer is knowing specifically what's within the breed you know I've I call myself a border collie person but Barley is my first border collie I've only ha had him for four years I got him from a shelter um, I mean the amount of research that I felt like I had to do to figure out what sort of health testing I was really looking for um, was really challenging and I have a lot of resources and a lot of friends available to help um, you know I was speaking to someone about a breeding that I was kind of looking at and um, the female in the breeding had OFA fair hips and she was like, I would not, no, I would not even consider um, OFA fair in the breed because, uh, you know, you're looking for a working performance dog while that's technically a passing score. I would absolutely not. Um, and I wouldn't have known that, you know, I was like, oh, it's a passing score. Cool. You know, um, and one of the things that you can also ask, and I think this is really important for anything that is hard to test is, is actually asking about those lines. You know, you don't want to just say like, oh, well, there's no deafness in my lines. So it's not necessarily an excuse if def deafness is a concern, um, for your breed. But, you know, things like epilepsy and border collies, um, there's no test for epilepsy. So just asking about your lines, the puppies that I'm bringing home, when I checked the epilepsy databases, there is one dog from the kennel of the great grandmother of my litter that had epilepsy and she is not related to my puppies. Um, so, you know, like looking for that and it's hard to know. And this is where working with, um, you know, not just your breeder within the breed, but other people within the breed who are gonna be able to give you that honest feedback and advice because, you know, your breeder is, even if they're an amazing breeder, they are, looking to place those puppies. Um, so getting 
other feedback from other people is going to be really helpful. Um, and, you know, with something like Labs or Goldens, I would, you know, want to ask about cancer and ask, you know, what age did the, did the great-grandparents die at? And what did they die from? Um, so that can kind of fit into kind of that health ish sort of um, category. And again, particularly with any breed that has some notoriety for health issues or dying at a young age, um, you know, wolfhounds, uh, bulldogs, all of those sorts of categories, I would really want to know how long the relatives lived and what they died of, because I don't want to bring home a puppy that's going to die at age eight. Um, all right, Amber, so let's go ahead with number 10. Um, let's see. Number 10. Oh yes. Um, not afraid of a lot of questions is number 10 on our list. And I love this point because it is something that I'm passionate about when it comes to, uh, reaching out and connecting with breeders. I, um, not only look for like, not afraid of a lot of questions, but then how does the breeder answer my questions? And, um, if I'm trying to get, um, answers about something, and I'm getting like one or two sentences back uh, where I have to ask a bunch of follow-up questions versus if I ask something and I get paragraphs in response. <laughs> and I know breeders are busy and um, and they're juggling a lot and they are um, being held to such a high standard on so many accounts. And, you know, communication is not everybody's strong suit. And so, yes, we need to be willing to work with them and communicate the way that they can. So whether that's, um, you know, Facebook message or email or talking on the phone or texting, like find the way that your breeder prefers to communicate because it's different. Like I, I talked with some breeders and we emailed back and forth. I talked with others and we Facebook messaged back and forth. And um, there may be some breeders like more like old school, traditional breeders who maybe don't use Facebook as much and you need to get them on the phone and you need to have a long conversation. And so if you're serious about working with someone, like find the way that they communicate and can communicate in lengthy um, bouts of time. And if you're finding that someone just doesn't have the time to answer your questions, um, doesn't want to answer your questions or answers them with vague or incomplete information and then doesn't um, respond to your follow-up questions, then that's probably not uh, a good situation to continue pursuing. At least that's, you know, something I find is not something that makes me comfortable with continuing that relationship. I know I had a breeder that I spoke to, um, maybe a year or so ago now who was very defensive with many of my questions, particularly about temperament. Um, and that was just kind of a huge red flag. And I know for a fact that this breeder has produced some dogs that I really like, but I had also heard that she tends to produce some, some, a variety of temperaments and you know so I wanted to get to the bottom of that and it, it very quickly turned very defensive and I just decided to walk away um, because I, I want to have a good relationship with them and I want to know that they're willing to match me with a puppy that meets my goals and I don't feel like if they're going to be really defensive with me they're actually taking that into account very well. Yeah, I think that it's important to remember that how they answer and what they are willing to answer before you get the puppy will be very indicative of how they will answer and how available they will be once that puppy is in your home and something comes up that you really need advice on. Um, you know, if they're not very commu communicative mm -hmm. before you get the puppy, it's not likely that they're just gonna suddenly turn into a fountain of information once that puppy comes home. So I think that's definitely kind of, it, it's a red flag for me because I want that support from my breeder. 
Yeah. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. And if you don't know what questions to ask, you know, because you, you're new to this, then again, finding those breed groups, um, doing research on the breed. Um, and there's just so many awesome uh, w ways to look for that nowadays with the internet um, that, you know, I know I, I started a list of the questions that I was going to ask a long time ago. I put them in a Google Doc um, because whenever I'm looking at a litter of puppies or I get on the phone, you know, I feel like I just like my mind kind of goes blank. Um, so I had all those questions laid out for myself so that I could kind of gauge their willingness to engage. Um, and we actually, so that was actually number nine. We accidentally skipped ahead. So um, Megan, why don't you touch on number 10? For real now <laughs> yes so number 10 is um waiting lists pricing deposits these are all things information that you want to gather um before you you know really kind of decide on a breeder you want to talk to them about you know what their process is what that looks like so a lot of breeders do have waiting lists um that's not unusual like we've talked about and I think that being willing to be on a waiting list is important when you're, you know, especially if you have very specific goals for a puppy. Um, and, but you want to talk to them about pricing, also about contracts. Um, I think it's really important to ask your breeder what's in the contract before you get your heart set on a puppy, um, because sometimes there can be some odd things in there that you might not have expected and that may not work for you. Um, and I also think that sometimes when contracts are too restrictive, it causes communication issues between uh, the breeder and the puppy owner because you're more likely to just not tell them about something if it wasn't exactly what they said. So um, I worked for a breeder who uh, fed exclusively raw and that was in her contract that, um, that all of her puppies had to be fed raw. And she actually told me one day that she knew that people didn't always follow that. Um, and I thought, well, that's kind of a bummer because they're not really going to, they're not being 100% honest with each other. And that, you know, it just, I think it's important to really pay attention to what sorts of things will work for you and won't, um, because everyone has different tolerances in terms of, you know, what they're going to do with their puppy. Is there a spay and neuter contract that works for you? You know, do you feel like you want to keep your puppy intact for longer for joint reasons? And they maybe have a contract that says that their puppies have to be spayed or neutered at six months or a year. Right. You obviously need to know that going in before you get really committed to a specific breeder or puppy. Um, and so I think that, you know, talking over all of those things and if they're not being very forthcoming about that, that could be problematic as well. You know, if they're not willing to talk to you about, um, you know, pricing and, and that sort of thing. And, uh, you know, you should certainly be a little concerned about the lack of transparency there. Um, and do know that a lot of breeders do take deposits for puppies um, to, you know, be on their wait list. So, you know, that's something that's to be expected from a responsible breeder, and it shouldn't be a big surprise if they do ask for a deposit. Yeah. Can I add um, a note on like the pricing discussion with breeders? Just a word of advice for those of our listeners who are, you know, thinking about approaching a breeder with a conversation and. I find that it's always best not to lead with that question. So that shouldn't be the first question that you ask. Um, there are a bunch of other criteria that uh, are more important than price, uh, and they are more important for the, uh, the for the breeder side. You asking about other things before price will demonstrate your commitment to the breed, your commitment to like a, getting a 
you know, quality dog. And if you lead, you know, if you see a litter posting on Facebook and you lead with how much for a puppy, that is not going to be a um, relationship sparking uh, intro, rather a um, an intro that's going to prompt a breeder to write you off as, you know, potentially a little spammy or not quite, you know, of the um, type of puppy buyer they're looking for. So while yeah. pricing discussions are super important, I find that um, they're one of the last conversations that you should be having before like saying, yes, I'm committing to this litter rather than the very first one. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, on the deposit note as well, I know my current breeder, um, I actually haven't paid my deposit yet because she wasn't going to ask for the deposit until we were matched with our puppies, um, which was very nice of her. And I know I don't love seeing deposits that are required before the puppies are born um, because you just don't know. You know, I don't really want to pay a deposit um, on a litter that turns out to only have two in it and I'm not going to get a puppy from that. I don't really want to pay a deposit just to hold my spot in line. Um, although some breeders require that, that's not necessarily a reason that I would run from a breeder. But for me personally, in my financial situation, and you know, uh, I, that was something that I did walk away from at least one breeder, um, just partially for that reason. Um, and then on the contract issue, I'm really glad you brought that up because we didn't have that written down, Megan. Um, there was There's another breeder that I walked away from. They had a very restrictive vaccination contract. They wanted very minimal vaccinations. And um, given the line of work that I do, the conservation detection dog thing, um, it is often a requirement for the work that I do that the dogs are fully legally, you know, veterinary record-wise up to date with various vaccinations because if my dog is not fully up to date on distemper and then we go into a black-footed ferret colony and those black-footed ferrets come down with distemper six weeks later um, and that you know rarest mammal in North America, they start dying left and right, that is a huge liability for me. So even though they might be able to titer to say that my dog doesn't carry it, you know, blah, 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 you know, there are reasons that you would walk away from a contract that might be reasonable for someone else. So it's worth getting eyes on earlier rather than later. Um, so. All right. Um, so then number 11 is that they only deal in one or two breeds or kind of purpose mixes. Um, I don't generally love to see breeders that dabble in 16 breeds. Um, it's just really hard to know the lines and the tendencies and the health testing and all of the things that we've been talking about the, that breeders really have to be so knowledgeable in for a lot of breeds. Um, so I know a couple of breeders. That, yeah, it sounds exhausting. <laughs> I know a couple of breeders that breed with that do two breeds um, and even two very different breeds. Our, our friend Danny, um, she and her partner do Australian Shepherds and Mini Bull Terriers, um, which are very, very different breeds. Um, but I don't know of any breeders that I trust who do more than two. Um, and then, you know, with the caveat of sometimes sport mixes or purpose-bred mixes, they're going to deal with a variety of breeds. Um, but that's it's, it's a little bit of a different case. And I think particularly if you're kind of looking at the good breeder versus puppy mill comparison, a lot of puppy mills are likely to have a wide variety of breeds um, or a, just a ton of different toy breeds or something. And yeah, that's a, that's a big red flag. <laughs> uh, I, I think also that's a great place where if you do see that as a little bit of a red flag, um, see if you can communicate with the breeder about it. Because um, I do know like a very reputable Border Collie breeder that has a variety of other breeds in her house and none of those dogs are breeding dogs. 
They are her pets. She absolutely living with other types of dogs and she breeds amazing border collies. So that shouldn't discount, you know, just like, oh, well, mm -hmm. we counted up and she has five different breeds in her house, um, but she's not breeding all of those different breeds. So, you know, talking to them about, you know, if you do start to see where it's maybe on the line, it's clearly not like puppy mill style of we have any breed you want, um, but maybe there's more breeds in the house than, you know, than seems, you know, logical to you in that moment. I think that a good breeder will be able to explain to you why they may have a, a wider variety of dogs within their house than, you know, just what they're specifically breeding. Absolutely. And I know, um, you know, the Functional Dog Collaborative talks a lot about kind of these purpose sport mixes and it's, it's challenging, you know, if you're breeding uh, a Border Collie and a Whippet mix to a Staffordshire Bull Terrier, um, Border Terrier mix to try to make some fly ball um, maniac dog. Um, those puppies are going to be more varied. And if that's really what you're looking for, you know, that's okay. But I would, you know, just do your research because there are times where these purpose bred sport mixes are awesome. Um, and, you know, your breeder is probably going to be able to be honest with you about, you know, why she, why he or she chose those dogs um, and, you know, the health testing that they're, they're trying to do. Um, but it is, it gets a lot more complicated. And I think we're generally just going to leave that stone relatively unturned here. And we're going to assume that most of you guys are looking at, you know, if not purebreds, maybe, you know, doodles um, or other kind of two breed mixes, because as soon as you're starting to get more complicated than that, um, that's just honestly above our pay grade, <laughs> given that this is a free <laughs> podcast. <laughs> yeah. um, all right, so let's go on to number 12 and we're almost done here and we're actually just going to wrap it up here and then we'll talk about picking a puppy after after we hit all 14 of them. So um, Amber, let's go ahead with number 12. Yes. So number 12 is that um, your breeder should be willing to take the puppy back um, relatively unconditionally throughout the puppy's life at any point. Um, and that is usually represented in a clause in your contract with the breeder or some sort of like stated um, agreement at the beginning of your relationship with the breeder. And one of the reasons that this is so important to look for is that, you know, oh, a great breeder cares about their dogs well beyond their time in their home. And that means like if you uh, get a puppy and then unforeseen circumstances happen, um, you know, we, we all like to think that our lives are going to remain steady state for um, the next, you know, foreseeable future, but we know that that's not always the case. And so a good breeder should continue to feel a sense of responsibility towards that dog and help support you through the eventuality, however unpleasant it is to think about, like if you were not able to continue to provide for that dog. And that could be a change in your circumstance. It could be a change in the dog's um, you know, ability. Maybe you get a puppy um, intending for it to be a, um, a service dog for your um your your own or a family member's um, special needs that they have a very specific set of goals that you need this dog to perform. And then the dog grows up and is just not cut out for that set of responsibilities. Like uh, if you have don't have the ability to have an extra dog in your home outside of those that career path, then that might be a situation where you call the breeder back and say, you know, this dog just isn't fitting with what we needed. Can you help support us either with taking the dog back into your household or connecting us with um, another person who might be looking for an awesome family pet? And so a good breeder should be 
um, demonstrating their commitment to that right from the very beginning without you needing to, um, you know, seek out a ton of support from them on that. That should be just something they're, they're insisting on at the beginning. Yeah. And, you know, this probably goes without saying, but this probably shouldn't be the first question you ask your breeder. (laughs) Uh, Hi, how much is it? And will you take it back if I don't like it? Um, Probably will turn your breeder off, even though those are both perfectly reasonable questions to ask. Um, And I know, you know, my breeder and I have had this discussion. I absolutely hope that my puppy is going to work out, but um, given my goal of working with him, um, and that being part of my career, if he is really looking like he's a better, awesome agility dog and really just not picking up the scent work sort of thing, you know, it's a possibility that I might want to send him back or find him a new home. Um, and I really, really hope that doesn't happen. We're doing everything we can to avoid that. Um, but, you know, and I'm I, I'm very pro um, getting a dog into the right home that's the right match for that dog. Um, and hopefully most breeders are as well. You know, they 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 raise those puppies from, from babyhood. A lot of them, you know, they like literally cut the umbilical cord for that puppy. They want that puppy in a home where it can be as successful as possible. So it's generally a pretty good sign to see that they're willing to do that, um, even if it is a really hard thing. Yeah, we have um, one of my sister's dogs is a puppy that we bred that... Um, at about five years old, his owner really started going through some hard times and had to make some tough decisions and had multiple dogs. And we actually jumped in and and said, hey, if you need a place for him to go, we're here with open arms because she was really struggling with how to meet everyone's needs um, adequately. Mm-hmm. And she said it was just so uh, such a relief to know that he had a safe place to land Um, and you know, she had other dogs that had been rescued, that sort of thing that she just didn't feel like she had the same, uh, support system there. And, you know, he, we didn't end up rehoming him. My sister decided to keep him and, and he's, uh, a little obnoxious, but wonderful. And, um, and we absolutely just (laughs) as a breeder, the thought of any of your puppies that you've produced going on to being homeless in some way or another, or unwanted, is um it's just heartbreaking right like uh, we we arranged a transport from indiana to colorado for this dog within two days um because it was like has to come back home right Mm -hmm. like if if he can't if he doesn't have a safe space where he is he that's he's coming back to us and so it is something that i i wouldn't buy a puppy from a breeder who um wasn't willing to take the dog back because i also think that it says something about um, you know, the breeder has to really believe in the quality of the dogs they're putting out there, because if they're putting out dogs that uh, have consistent temperament issues or health issues, then they're getting a lot of puppies returned and they have to really think about what it is that they're doing. And so I think it, it adds a little bit of a level of accountability as well, um, that, you know, mm-hmm. if you're making that promise, most of the placements you're making, you have a lot of faith in and you really think that they're going to work out because no one wants an entire litter back, right? None of us really have the space or the time for that. Um, And so I do think that it also adds a little accountability for the breeder to produce dogs that um, are going to be successful in their homes in general. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. And, and yeah, it doesn't mean that that puppy is going to, you know, or adult dog is going to spend the rest of its life back with the breeder, they're often going to go ahead and rehome. I know it didn't happen for for this dog, Megan, but, um, you know, I understand, you know, some of the breeders I look at have 12 dogs. You know, if I got a puppy from them, and it didn't work out, the puppy would go back to them for a period of time, and they likely wouldn't keep it. 
because they only have room for the breeding dogs <laughs> um, and their keepers from each litter, and that that's okay. Um, so you know, it doesn't mean that they're going to keep all of them, but they are going to work to rehome uh, appropriately and, and and be really helpful with you, even if that puppy never actually goes and passes back through their doors. Um, the puppy that I, I mentioned earlier that I had been willing to take on a very short notice earlier this year. Um, he was a owner rehome because he had an undescended testicle and wasn't going to work as a show prospect. That wasn't an issue for me. Um, he uh, and the breeder and the current owner and I were all working really closely to to match him with me. Um, and it didn't, again, it didn't end up working out, but you know, he never went back to the breeder, but she was still really involved. So. All right, um, so I think number 13 ties in really closely with something we've already mentioned as far as not afraid of a lot of questions, but I think it's a little bit different. So Amber, why don't you go ahead and talk about 13? Sure. So 13 is eager to provide guidance. And this is uh, just an essential piece. Uh, breeder, especially if you're a new um, dog owner or a new uh, participant in that breed and don't have other mentors um, in dog ownership or in that particular breed, um, it's especially important to have someone who can you know, be there to answer your questions should they come up um, and answer questions about the breed in general or specifically about, you know, the lines that uh, the breeder was producing and what is normal. I know when I um, was uh, uh, raising Rue, I was always asking my breeder, like, so it has, Rue had, I think, seven litter mates. So has, have any of the other litter mates been doing this? And, um, oh, is this normal for this age, you know, with your dogs? And um, those type of questions and having the breeder to give you context and, you know, support through that, it can be really, um, really invaluable. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, as you know, we mentioned at the top, you know, with our poodle example, um, I might not necessarily know to ask about grooming as a new puppy buyer. But, you know, hopefully my breeder is also going to be willing to provide that guidance. And your breeder might also ask you a lot of questions. That's something we don't have on here. But um, your breeder is going to ask you a lot about what your goals are and, you know, what your tolerance is for shedding or what your, your goal you know, what your activity um, style is like, your activity level, that's the word. Um, uh, and, you know, so that kind of folds into the guidance, but, you know, expect your breeder to have some questions for you as well. And I um, I find it a little odd if a breeder, you know, and, and again, they might not have time or Facebook Messenger might not be their preferred mode of contact, but I find it a little odd if a breeder doesn't have some amount of, of questions for me about, you know, what what I'm looking for and what I'm going to provide. And I know when I was looking, I'm, you know, I tend to be a little bit um, type A about these sorts of things, but I had a Google doc written up where I had, uh, you know, it was like a 500 word essay <laughs> about like what I'm providing and what I'm looking for and what that lifestyle is like. So I didn't get a ton of follow-up questions from breeders once I sent that along. Um, but I did tend to get some clarifying questions. Um, so, you know, you're, you're really looking again for that, that give and take and that guidance. So um, the last um, point, number 14, is proven lines for your goals. Um, and that applies whether you're looking for sport dogs or pet dogs. So Megan, do you want to talk a little bit about lines and goals? Yeah, absolutely. I think that um, whether you're looking for a pet or a competition dog or they have a specific job in mind, um, it is really important to align with a breeder who you know, has done the, those sorts of activities with their dog. Um, so even looking at, you know, if you are going to a breeder who most of their dogs live in kennels, 
and you are looking for a family pet, they you might not have a lot of evidence that proves that the, the parents of that dog are, are good at being a family pet. Um, and so I think that it is really important to look at what it is that you want your dog to do, um, no matter what that is, and to align yourself with uh, breeders that have similar goals with their dogs. I think it's very important that they understand what um, what is required of the sport you're doing, because I have seen a lot of times you'll see a breeder that says, you know, maybe they mostly focus on, say, the show ring, and they have a puppy that's just like over the top active, and they'll say, would be a great agility prospect. Well, if they don't do agility, they don't actually know what a great agility prospect looks like. Um, and so it is really important to find a breeder who has experience with the things that you want to do with your dog. It's not always going to be possible. Like maybe the thing that you want to do with your dog is not something that, uh, like, I, I'm going to say, I was just going to say, Kayla, I can't imagine that you <laughs> right into a ton of Border Collie breeders that were breeding for, um, you know, conservation work. Um, I don't know if there are any breeders anywhere that breed for conservation <laughs> dog work. Uh, you know, the, the closest for, I could probably get was search and rescue. Yes, yes. I was going to say we do breed for, you know, so we've had quite a few puppies that have gone on to search and rescue homes and quite a bit of uh, nose work and that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, there's not, you're not always going to find like perfect alignment. Um, if you find a breeder that you absolutely love who has not done the sport that you are interested in doing, um, especially if it's not a support, a sport that you've done a lot of, right? Like if you're a really seasoned agility competitor, you probably have an idea of what you might want in an agility puppy. Um, but really find out what some of the specifics that you're looking for in terms of not just, you know, is the puppy really active, but are they confident on uneven surfaces? Um, are they, you know, comfortable in new environments? Are they sound sensitive? Those sorts of things. Um, if you aren't able to find a breeder that directly knows about the sport that you, or activity that you are doing, um, you really want to give them even more information on what specific temperament traits you're looking for, um, just so that they can help match you to the right puppy within that litter. Yeah. And, you know, generally when you're looking for a pet dog, what I kind of tell people is, you know, look for successful pet dogs that, you know, ideally the breeder is not going for sport dogs. Um, and then, you know, look for a puppy who's kind of in the middle of the litter. Um, if you've got a litter of show line dogs or, pet, you know, dogs that were bred to be pets, generally you don't want to go with the shyest or the boldest if you're just really looking for a solid pet, you know, kind of go for, for the middle of the road. Um, and yeah, sometimes when people are breeding for agility or for a sport, they're going to have a puppy or two who kind of turns out to be more on that relaxed side, like that Ridgeback that you had mentioned at the beginning, Megan. Um, and that's, you know, that's a perfectly fine way to get a dog, but generally, um, you know, look for dogs that have succeeded at the job that you want and being a good family pet is a job, um, in, in this sentence. <laughs> So let's do a quick recap and then we're going to get out of here. So um, our broad things that we're looking for are that they've got one litter at a time. The parents are on site and available for meeting, meeting greets or video. Um, the puppies are raised indoors. They've got some part, sort of puppy raising culture or puppy raising program. Um, the breeder is going to work with you to select the puppy and it's not just based on color or they just ask you what you want. <laughs> um, that the parents are over two years old and that the puppies aren't available until roughly eight weeks old. Um, they do breed appropriate health testing, and unfortunately, um, 
there is quite a bit of research that you're going to have to do on that end. So that's that, that's a, a huge topic. Um, your breeder is not going to be afraid of a lot of questions. There are waiting lists, pricing questions, deposits, contracts, and all of those kind of align with what you're looking for. Generally, that the breeder only deals with one or two breeds or purpose-bred mixes, that the breeder is willing to take the puppy back, that the breeder is eager to provide guidance and work with you for matchmaking, and that those lines, so the genetic lineage of your puppy, is what you're looking for for your goals. So do we have anything else that we want to add before we get out of here? I just have one last um, thought and that you know, growing up in the dog show world and in the, in the dog world, the phrase like get a puppy from a responsible breeder was used so freely and so casually um, because that's what, you know, was just the culture in, in the dog show world. Of course you would go to a responsible breeder. Um, and the, you know, perception I always had was like, the, that's the easiest thing in the world to do is get a puppy from a responsible breeder. And having worked with two wonderful breeders who weren't the first breeders or the second breeders or even the third breeders that I had contacted in my process to get a puppy of that particular type and having to, you know, navigate like the heart wrenching, like walking away from a litter that was already on the ground, you know, in multiple cases, um, you know, has just really given me a lot of perspective on that. This isn't an easy process and it isn't as easy as people in the industry or in the dog show community make it seem like it should be. And so, you know, if I'm having that struggle as a dog person with, you know, a lot of knowledge and a lot of connections, I have a lot of breeder friends of many different types of breeds who, um, you know, connect me with their breeder friends of different breeds. And if, if I'm having that struggle, then with all of that and with knowing all these questions to ask, like what are uh, our, our average, you know, just I want a family pet um, owners facing and they're, they're, it is um, just giving me a lot of empathy, empathy to say like, this isn't an easy process. And I don't, I think we need to change that narrative to say like this, um, you know, it's, if it's hard, <laughs> it's, it's working the way it, and maybe it shouldn't work that way, but it's working the way it does work. <laughs> and um, don't be afraid to walk away um, if it's not working well for you. And don't be afraid to keep trying. And I still believe strongly, despite all the frustrations and the the hoops that you have to jump through, that getting a dog from a good breeder who's going to be there as a support system for you, um, you know, well before you bring your dog home and well after, I still think that that is valuable and worth the effort. Um, and I just want to put it out there that yes, it is hard and it is grueling and it is heart wrenching in a lot of ways. Um, and that is, you know, the norm <laughs> can be the norm, I guess. Um, and to keep at it. And that's, that's just, that's yeah, and, and that experience is going to vary from breed to breed. Absolutely. Um, you know, I know if I was looking at, labs for the line of work that I was doing, that I'm doing, um, it might be a little bit easier for me because yeah. a field bred lab and what labs do when they're hunting is actually very similar to the line of work that I do. Mm -hmm. um, and if I had decided that I wanted to bring home an Akita instead, um, it would have been even harder. And there are certain breeds where there are just, there are different cultures within breeds and it's going to be harder to find um, given breed uh types within a breed so you know i know i've i, I follow um a lot of different how to you know breed support facebook groups or whatever and if you are looking for a havanese and your goal is agility it's going to be much harder 
than if you are going with a border collie for agility. Although if you're looking for a border collie for agility, it can be kind of hard to find a border collie who's easy to live with the other 23 hours a day when you're not training for agility versus that Havanese is going to be a lot easier the other 23 hours a day in general. So, um, and I, my heart really goes out to people who have their heart set on um, rarer breeds or newer breeds, um, particularly if you're not looking for something that is extremely typical for that breed. Um, again, my ex-boyfriend really wanted an Akita. Um, and I really wanted a dog that was going to be a great demo dog and a totally rock solid um, dog with a variety of strangers and strange people and strange dogs. And that is just not the norm for that breed. And that's, you know, a huge part of the reason we don't have one. <laughs> um, um, so I guess the last thing, and then we will go, I know this has already gone a little bit long, it, because I think it fits better here than it does in the next episode of Picking a Puppy, is where to actually go to start your search for that breeder. Um, so the first thing I'll say is join the Pandemic Puppy Raising Facebook group. Um, and if you're interested, I think many of our admin offer services to help you look for a breed and help you look for a breeder and help you look for that puppy. Um, so you can go ahead and just get free support there. I think any of us would be happy to step in and help. And many of us are knowledgeable in a, enough breeds that we'd be able to find someone who would really know what you're looking for and help you with that breed. Um, some of the other places that I tend to look and we'll let Megan and Amber jump in after I've listed mine are, I really like the Factor fi Fiction Uncensored Opinions of Breeders Facebook group. Um, there are a variety of other Facebook groups out there that kind of serve the same purpose. That's the one that I personally have found really helpful. Um, so again, that's Factor Fiction Uncensored Opinions of Breeders. Um, I've found that group useful. Um, you guys can always look at breed clubs or breed shows in your area. Um, the in-person breed shows are going to be a lot harder um, during COVID. <laughs> and if you're in a rural area, but getting to know the breed um, and finding out who's good in that breed is going to be really helpful. Um, or if you're looking for a specific sport, hanging out at um, trials for that sport. Um, although that's slow and it's time consuming. And oh my God, I've just started going to agility trials and you know what? They're actually not that fun to hang out at. Um, so, you know, that's, that's a tricky one. Um, but I, I found it really useful to just talk to friends with nice dogs. Um, if I see a dog that I really like um, and I get to know a dog that I really like, I'll ask, you know, who the breeder is or what the lines are. Um, how I found one of the breeders that I looked at really closely was because she actually has a daughter from my top choice breeder. Um, and that dog is a breeding prospect. And that's how I found her because I was not having much luck with uh, that. That was a breeder whose pregnancies kept not taking. Um, and if you're looking more for kind of mixy mix dogs or sport mix dogs, um, the Functional Breeding Collaborative um, Facebook group um, can be a good place to start, uh, especially again, if you're looking for more of those sport mixes. So do you guys have any other places that you tend to look for um, for starting to find breeders? Sure. Um, yeah, I would say, you know, I definitely agree with uh, talking to people that you see with dogs that are doing the things that you want to do with your dog. Um, I think that can be a great way to start making some connections. And something that you touched on, Kayla, there is like, if you contact one breeder, be willing to get a referral to another breeder, right? Because they have a better network than you do probably in that moment. Um, and they just may not have something that's available for you. So, um, my very first dog was actually, and I don't recommend this um, as a way to find a dog anymore because I think there's a lot more technology, but um, we actually found a breeder ad in the back of Dog Fancy magazine and we contacted them and she said, 
Um, I don't have anything available, but one of my dogs was just used at stud and here's the breeder's name. Um, and so, you know, that's a pretty common thing to kind of get that referral on to someone else. Don't feel like they're trying to brush you off um, because it really is about having a bigger network. That's where you're going to really find the, um, you know, the best connections and that sort of thing. And luckily with Facebook and, and other social media, that is easier in some ways um, because we can really branch out and look at a lot of different options and talk to a lot of different people. Um, but I definitely think that, you know, it, it does take some time to to make those connections sometimes. Yeah. The first uh, breeder that I had set my heart on getting a dog from, I found her um, by, I found a dog on Instagram and I fell in love with this dog and it was doing all of the things that I wanted my future Papillon to do from hiking and backpacking to boating and paddleboarding and, um, you know, doing training classes with dogs 20 times its size with so much confidence. And like, I just, you know, fell in love with this little dog and started corresponding with the owner back and forth quite a bit, asking her a lot of questions about her um, little Papillon and then asked her to put her, me in touch with um, her breeder and then transferred over and started dialing, dialoguing with that breeder quite a bit. And that ended up not working out at this point, but um, it was still, a, that was how I had you know, discovered that first, um, breeder connection and, um, was a really, you know, useful application of social media, um, in a way that, you know, you still have to follow up with the real questions. It's not just like a, Oh, I, I want one like yes. that. Give me one like that. Like ask the real questions that we've talked about. But, um, you know, if you see a dog doing the things that you want to be doing with your future dog, like, yeah, hit him up. Most people will love to talk about their dog and where they got their dog from. <laughs> Absolutely. I know I uh, I actually spent a while trying to track down Barley's original mm -hmm. breeder um, after I'd had him for about a year or so and was like, you know, if that breeder exists, like, still, um, I would love to get his grandniece or something and um, was never able to find them. I think he was sold at about five weeks in a Walmart parking lot, um, <laughs> which kind of goes to show that, you know, even if you don't know what you're doing, you sometimes can get really lucky and produce a really, really lovely dog. Um, so I honestly probably wouldn't have gone back to them even if I could have found them, but. That's funny. Cause I have, I have dreams about finding my rescue border collies breeder too. Cause she has such nice qualities that I'm like, <laughs> I, I did yeah. this on accident maybe you mm -hmm. did but i i would love to see what else yeah because that was what i was thinking was like maybe maybe someone had broken the contract and he's actually from a nice breeder um and he the guy um i managed to track down the old owner because i worked at the shelter and i went through the records um and he was just like no i just found him on craigslist and you know picked him up in a walmart parking lot <laughs> I'm like well okay well i guess it worked um you know, although not necessarily dice, I am willing to roll again. Um, so um, as I said, we're going to go ahead and break this up and we'll do a separate episode about selecting the puppy. And we'll we'll include in that episode some questions to ask your breeder that are not breed specific. Um, so come back for that. Um, so before we go, um, we'll go Megan and then Amber, where can people find you online? Um, to, if they wanted to connect or learn about you more. Yeah, so um, you can find my web, website at dogsdeciphered.com. Um, I'm also on Facebook and Instagram, just at dogsdeciphered. And um, I also have an online platform with a couple of online nose work classes and a, and a webinar as well at Thinkific. So you can search for, uh, I think Kayla has the link to it, but you'll, you know, just for dogs mm -hmm. deciphered Thinkific. 
and um, have access to those classes as well. Awesome. And I am at uh, summitdogtraining.com and uh, on Facebook and Instagram under that uh, handle as well. And I also have you know online classes uh, that you can find through our website, uh, ranging from puppy basics to good dog manners, um, adventure courses for upper level things as well. So lots of places to find uh, find us online. Awesome. And I run Journey Dog Training, which you guys can find at journeydogtraining.com. Um, the big thing that I think listeners to this podcast are most likely to find helpful is that I have a puppy raising blueprint course. So if you want to check that out, it's at journeydogtraining.com slash blueprint. Um, and it covers kind of everything from problem behaviors and socialization to the human hierarchy of dog training. And I had a lot of fun filming it. I actually borrowed um, a series of five or six different puppies to film all the classes because I didn't have one at the time. So you get to see a variety of different uh, puppy temperaments and breeds for all the different demo videos. And again, this is the Pandemic Puppy Podcast. You guys, um, just thanks so much for listening. Make sure to join Patreon um, for three bucks a month if you want to be able to ask us questions at the end of each episode. Um, You guys can subscribe and review wherever you're listening. And make sure that you guys go on over to um, Facebook and join the Pandemic Puppy Raising Support Facebook group. Um, You'll get all sorts of free, amazing content from Megan, Amber, myself, and um, several other awesome... uh, admins over there. So we'll, we'll talk to you guys again soon. Bye.